Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. Welcome, Katie and Ben. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. The name of our podcast is Critical Futures, and we're here to talk about the future of healthcare, health equity, and policy. So I'd love it if you both take a moment to introduce yourselves to our audience. Sure. My name is Katie Uber, and I'm the Director of Economic Justice at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law in Washington, D.C. Um, and the Economic Justice Project is has a portfolio that includes health equity um, advocacy. And so um, I'm relatively new to the space. I've been in this role for the last year and a half. And before that time, I spent 20 years uh, representing low-wage uh, clients on the Texas-Mexico border in um, direct legal services. And my name is Ben Devanzo. I'm senior health policy analyst at the National Immigration Law Center. Um, I have worked in health equity for a little over a decade now, um, and particularly worked on data equity is, as a consulting role on this project in the past. Uh, due to work I've done around equity in the Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community in past roles, as well as broader racial equity and health equity in the kind of data desegregation context, although my work now focuses really on health equity among immigrant populations. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Both of you do incredibly important work. I am thankful that you are spending some time with us to help us make this work even more impactful and scale it up. When you hear the phrase critical futures, what does it mean to you in your work on anti-racist health policy or research on structural racism in the healthcare system at large? When I think of the word critical, I think that it's a matter of life and death. And this work, I believe, um, advancing health equity is a matter of life and death. Those are those are the stakes. And when we think about um, people of color having shorter life expectancies, I mean. And we're just allowing that to 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 exist and continue. I mean that that is that is not a future, right? And so, um, yeah, I see it as um, you know a very urgent and um, absolutely life and death kind of uh, situation. I would say when we think about a critical future context in the health equity space, especially, we think about I think about rethinking and reframing the way our entire health care system works to recognize the real harm that has been done for hundreds of years to communities of color um, and the real way that healthcare systems are not set up to support very basic needs and in fact are set up in some ways to worsen them. And that really goes to the way that we in fact think about delivery of healthcare to communities and in fact community involvement in healthcare. So it is really a top-down reframing 
of not just the real basics of, you know, how do you provide healthcare to an individual or to a region, but really a reframing of how we think about healthcare delivery in general. Absolutely. I really appreciate your two unique frames of that question, right? So Katie, you're like, boom, life and death. It's pressing. I appreciate that framing. And then yours is like a nod to the past, right? In order to move forward with a different future, we have to be cognizant of all the ways these injustices, oppressive systems, and really bad behavior has accumulated over time and impacted communities. So from your two very unique perspectives, then, what do you think is the most critical or pressing issue related to your work? How do we build that different future? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's 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 really impossible to to know the answer to that question without really deep engagement with the community. And um, what I would say that in my in my short time here, um, having picked up on the advocacy of my predecessors, is two very big two of the very big critical pressing issues related to anti-racist um, health policy is the need for disaggregated demographic data that is equitable in nature. So equitable in terms of why it's being collected, how it's being collected, and what it's being used for, and sort of how, how it's going to be used. Um, and another issue is the need to address discriminatory barriers to healthcare. So there's lots of barriers um, to access to quality healthcare um, for people of color. I think one area where we can work on as civil rights lawyers are uh, discriminatory barriers and um, um, you know the need to shine a light on um, on instances where um, you know there's systemic um, systemic discrimination or structural racism sort of baked into practices and policies. So those are kind of the two broad air issue areas that we've been focusing on here um, at the Lawyers Committee for, for the last uh, few years. In, in my current work, uh, I focus a lot on the fact that we, we in the United States view immigrants as undeserving of healthcare and not needing of healthcare. And the group that is statutorily barred from healthcare in many ways and are just viewed as a resource labor. But more broadly, in building on those kind of the broader picture around like data disaggregation and health equity in terms of a civil rights lens, you can look at the laws we've passed in this country and particularly things like the Civil Rights Act and Title, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and before, which says that any recipients of federal funding are not supposed to discriminate based on race or based on national origin and how we know that happens every single day and how there is no serious look at implementing that or providing oversight of that. At the same time, because we see that we have laws around data and what is supposed to be collected and reported. And again, the fact that data, no one was, very few people I can speak this as an advocate, data advocate prior to COVID. Very few people were talking about data equity prior, prior to COVID, except for those in kind of the communities of color most impacted by it and whose data, who, because they were not in the data, did not exist according to kind of government programs. And the fact that data 
equity, again, does not, even though we have laws that are in theory says that you're supposed to collect data, you're supposed to report it, that just does not happen at every single level of the healthcare system. And so we have these laws in theory on the books, let alone the fact that we need to pass way more protections and expand and address these barriers. The fact that uh, we are not even really implementing uh, programs and laws that have been on the books for decades in terms of how we deliver healthcare and how we provide health coverage to people. So one of the really interesting moments then is how you both can use your credentials and your history to impact policy beyond folks who collect the data, right, as lawyers. So what are some of the things that you are working on, you and your community partners or folks in community or maybe some past community work? What are some of the things that you're working on um, to address the issues that you're talking about? from this perspective of a lawyer versus a healthcare worker? Um, So, uh, you know, we came to start focusing on the need for demographic data collection in healthcare during the COVID-19 pandemic. Like it really started at the beginning of the pandemic. And there were lots of misinformation out there about um, the community, you know, uh, communities of color and how they were getting impacted and um, how how different communities were responding. And, and, and so there was just a ton of misinformation. And we were hearing from our longtime community partners, you know, that this was a real problem and there was a need for um, advocacy uh, to, um, to get, um, you know, to get the federal and state government and healthcare providers to start accurately reporting on what was going on on the ground and to providing, you know, reliable and comprehensive information about the impacts of the pandemic on different communities. And so um, we, um, in consultation with partners and experts like Ben, um, began like an advocacy campaign. Um, this involved, you know, first, Sort of understanding the issue and doing some research to know where the gaps were and what what the current state of um, data collection was at the beginning of the pandemic, and then doing uh, using sort of um, uh, using our position as a national advocacy organization that's been around for you know, decades and decades to start sending out letters um, and um, and and other advocacy. Um, to pressure state public health departments, the CDC, and others in the government to start collecting and releasing um, uh, disaggregated demographic data. Um, So that's kind of what we did. Um, One of my colleagues also um, spoke uh, to the White House Task Force on Health Equity about the importance of comprehensive data collection practices. And our work sort of uh, culminated in the preparation of a report that um, we will we will link to hopefully on the podcast provide some information about how to get it but uh, it's on our website and it's a report of best practices for state and state health departments and um, the federal government for reporting you know demographic data for it's specifically in the COVID-19 context of tests, cases, outcomes, vaccinations, 
but really about the need for systematized uh, demographic data collection that um, beyond the pandemic and sort of how we can support healthcare providers and communities in being um, included in this in this data. That's just such a critical first step. I mean, there's so many problems we've come to learn in engaging with different community partners in this work, including Ben, about you know how how demographic data collection, like even the very minimum that's been done today, is you know it's done in a way that it it often results in bad data because you're not like it the government has not taken a sort of an equitable approach in in the way that it's collected data or how it will use the data or how it's engaging the community and providing the data and so there are lots of flaws with the system um but um but this i think is 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 a is a first step is you know shining a light on the need for um for better data, data collection practices. I can say from uh, a perspective, like as le legal advocates are many ways, that connection between community and policy and statute. And so uh, for reference, I'm not a lawyer, but I work with many and have my, my work is very much policy advocacy, but also legal advocacy in that lack of realization of the laws. So for example, the Affordable Care Act, passed now 13 years ago, says that Department of Health and Human Services is supposed to collect, disseminate, disaggregated data. Uh, and as we saw during COVID-19, it does not. And the ro role of, I think, legal advocates, as the Lawyers Committee did, is to really shine a light of, through, through our connections with people who are are either in litigation or are connected to local legal aid organizations or are doctors on the ground as as the um Lawyers committee did creating a network during the pandemic of doctors who were able to identify many of these flaws that every single you know these these problems are multifaceted and it really takes that sort of legal analysis to to be able to dig through and identify what is the legal basis, what is actually happening or not happening on the ground, how are communities being impacted, ideally through a community lawyering perspective of kind of identifying and talking to impacted community and where their asks are at, and then using the access to power through relationships through HHS. I regularly meet still with uh, folks in HHS. I had pretty frequent meetings and wrote memos to CDC about the lack of equity in the COVID-19 pandemic response and really identifying, okay, where are the failures that we are hearing about from the ground? Because policymakers, particularly at the federal level, very, very distant from the ground, do not know what's happening on the ground for the most part, depend on advocates and legal advocates to understand what is going on and then provide clear, specific, actionable recommendations that actually can be done. And I will say that does not mean success, but we did see progress and we have seen uh, some recent interest and in understanding from the current uh, administration and power that we do need to improve data equity as well as from Congress during the pandemic. Wonderful. So if that first, maybe it's not the first, right? But if one of these 
really critical and pressing issues is just disaggregating the data and having a really clear understanding of who is experiencing what to what degree. Um, and so we can think of that as being anti-racist on its head, right? Because it is saying, let's paint the full and holistic picture of what's happening so that we can treat it effectively, right? And I'm thinking about everything that's going on in Florida right now and this push to literally take away narratives, take away terminology, take away um, the ability to have an honest conversation about who's experiencing what to what degree. Um, and so when I'm, I'm through, again, your work, what do you hope then to change, shift, or radically reimagine once we get past this moment and we have this full, clear picture of who's experiencing what to what degree? What then do you hope to radically reimagine in this, in this work around anti-racist healthcare? Yeah, and I don't even know that it's that radical. It's pretty basic. You know, when you have the information, you can implement interventions to, to stop or prevent racism when it's happening in the moment. And so I think like it's, you know, there is a, there's a real just baseline need to get sort of a need for baseline data across the country right, to understand trends, comparisons, what's working where. I mean, we, certainly we have a need for that kind of macro information. But what really I think we need is for individual practices and clinicians to be able to see outcomes and what's going on in their practices and gaps um, in real time so that they can um, intervene. And I think you know, from talking to um, health equity advocates and um, and physicians um, and also other healthcare providers and clinicians, is there who have implemented anti-racism plans in their practices? This component of getting data, like for example, we heard from uh, a group that did a pilot project where they um, they they had a plan in place that allowed um, for patient information to go into this electronic monitoring system. And so a, a sort of a nurse, would, a head nurse would receive real-time notifications when patients weren't reaching milestones in their cancer treatment. And so um, they were able to then intervene immediately um, and find out well, what was going on. Why didn't you attend your treatment session? And then um, you know, they were able to provide a lot of times it was transportation issues or other caregiving responsibilities that patients had that didn't allow them to, 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 to attend all their treatments. And when they did this kind of intervention in real time, based on the data, right, coming in, that they saw the treatment completion rates, those disparities that existed between uh, patients of color and white patients completely evaporated. I mean, they were resolved. And that was just a simple intervention, right? So I think based on what I'm hearing from clinicians in the field who who believe that like, you know, you need statistics, you need numbers to first identify where there are problems and then, you know, to to like be able to act nimbly and creatively to intervene, um, to try to, to try to resolve those gaps. I mean, 
that's what I hear. And it, it seems to make a lot of sense that we need data. And, and so what, what do clinicians need to be able to implement that? Like resources, training, you know, expertise, um, best practices to be able to implement these things um, at that sort of level. I want, I just want to really drive that point home because I think as somebody who works in these spaces, who is constantly being bombarded with how bad things are, what you just said is such a huge globe of hope, right? That just having access to this data, you were able to resolve health inequities that otherwise would not have been resolved. Because I think a lot of us who do this work where there, you have every single day, I have at least moments where I am utterly overwhelmed by what needs to change, right? So when you break it down, like you said, it's not even that radical. It's actually quite simple. Um, ben, did you want to add anything? I, I want to acknowledge that with... If and when we get to the point where we have that data available at a systemic level, that itself would require a, would be in a massive achievement for anti-racism. Because I think you, you are, I mean, I think you're unfortunately right. It is overwhelming the barriers that prevent us from getting disaggregated data. We're talking at the IT levels about systems cannot be entered to, for example, allow people in the Asian American community to sub-identify as their as Korean or Chinese or Malaysian, where there are significant disparities between subgroups. White clinicians are uncomfortable with asking patients about their racial or gender or sexual orientation identities. And that means we don't get good data. If that's simply at the human level, people are uncomfortable with the idea of talking about race and racism or do not understand the actual importance for this data. Uh, and so we have a lot of work and connections to make between the human level, the systemic level, the simple investing money in IT infrastructure to get to that data point. When we get to that point, we can do a lot. And I really think about um, the uh, an example connected to COVID, which is the Stop AAPI Data Initiative which collected examples of in the well into the five digits of people of Asian American background who experienced hate, many of which in connection to racist, anti-Asian uh, rhetoric from politicians and the connection to COVID and people being harmed. A community that often does not have its voice heard and often a lot of assumptions that there are not problems faced within it were able to document and collect this data, which actually led to Congress working to pass a legislation that recognized it, which had led to executive orders from this current administration addressing uh, AAPI hate. And so we do know that if in many ways you don't exist, if date, your data doesn't exist, but when your data does exist and you can show the people who have control over that money, over resources, that investments are needed, that disparities exist. And in fact, here is where you need to make those investments, whether it's at that specific hospital level or at the systemic level and how CDC allocates its funding, then you can make a lot of change in really how budgets are, are, are run and really 
take into account the fact that budgets are moral documents, but budgets can't be moral documents if we don't have the data to demonstrate where the funding needs to go. That was superb. Thank you, Ben. One of the things that we are also thinking through and talking about is funding itself. How should funders be supporting this work, right? So thinking from your experiences, what advice would you give to funding organizations about supporting and evaluating this work, um, which of course requires data? <laughs> How should fundraisers and funders be working together to, to solve these issues? Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I can offer some advice based on my experience as someone whose work has been funded for a couple of decades by various funders in all different sorts of matters. And I would say that the funding that is the type of funding that has been most impactful in my in my experience um, has been funding that really, truly allows for the funded um, groups to direct the work and that um, provides the flexibility for them to like sort of continue doing what they're doing. I think a mistake that funders make is they want to sort of like, you know, say that they were responsible for X, Y, Z new thing and really the organizations that need to be funded, like they have the expertise, like they know what's most important for their communities and they don't need new ideas necessarily about new projects or something that's gonna be the one new idea that like changes it all. Like they're already been doing this work, right? And we've been doing this work for so long and we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So it's not that we're coming up with something new, it's that we're just maybe adapting it to to the to, to today or or we we're learning from um, the past and we're trying new things and but um I think the type of funding that's been most effect, effective in terms of long term and impactful change that I've seen is the one that was the the least sort of restrictive and the most like trusting of the organizations. And like really let them and their partners kind of direct the work and then report to them, uh, you know, this is this is what we did. This is how we kicked ass, you know, uh, and and they're just going to be doing it may be more of what they've been doing because you've given them resources to expand their work, you know, to work in collaboration in new ways. That kind of stuff that's more general, like, you know. One of the best grants that we ever got was really a grant to collaborate with others. I mean, that's literally the only thing it was about. And, and so it was great because in, in a community that where we hadn't had such intentional collaboration, all of a sudden we had money and time for each of our organizations to send staff members as they see fit to collaborate together. And that radically changed that community. Because suddenly, you know, suddenly I, we all brought our different expertise to bear on issues that our community was saying we should be working on. The, organ the funder wasn't telling us what to work on. The funder wasn't directing how to do it or what deliverable to produce. It really was that broad. And yet, I mean, I've never seen so much great work come out of something. 
So that would be my, that's not specific to health equity, but I think it's really important that funders know that that kind of, um, that kind of uh, funding structure is, 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 it can be really, truly transformative. I agree. General operating grants are as much the way we can go, particularly general operating grants for community-based organizations. Everything I said about all the barriers to data equity and data disaggregation apply to some of the expectations that sometimes funders have about reporting structures and, frankly, the burdens that are involved and the fact that community-based organizations often do not get funded or decline funding because of some of those reporting requirements and expectations. Getting data about your service, uh, the population you are serving, I think, is much harder than many people would uh, would guess. Um, I really, data is really important and we need it. And if there's investments in data infrastructure for community organizations or in story gathering and telling, that's great. But really let community organizations that are connected to the most impacted communities, and those are often the small underfunded organizations that don't have big development departments, that don't even have big staff, but are trusted by the communities and have so much potential. I will say, for example, um, when you see around things like language access and language data, where we have really poor collection of people's language preferences at every level, again, much like racial and ethnic data, but we've seen such a lack of investment in language access work because it just hasn't been a funder priority, despite the fact that I've been hearing for years that language barriers for you know 25 plus million people who are limited and proficient, most of whom are from communities of color, are just not getting the services they need because no one's investing in it. And I think community organizations, if they had the capacity to use their funds to provide for more translated documents and more like uh, languages to invest more interpreters would, but they're just so restricted in what capacity they have that um, they, they are not able to really do best uh, by their community. So I, I really think let communities lead should really be the the modus operandi for many, as many funders as we can we can get to do that. So I want to scale this the the rungs of the ladder you both have so beautifully articulated over the last twenty or so minutes. You you have taken us on a journey of the interpersonal barriers. So physicians and healthcare providers who are uncomfortable even naming race, racism, and other demographic identity markers that will help them treat their patients more successfully. One, right? Two, we've got the institutional level, the meso level, where we don't have disaggregated data to help us paint a holistic picture of what people are experiencing. And then you have this other pylon at the institutional level of funders not trusting their community members as experts of their own experience and willing to take um, a leap of faith. And, and trust them to do good work that they're already doing and eliminating some of those institutional barriers to even getting access to funds to continue doing their work and scaling it up. And then you've got your macro level stuff, which is the stuff we've been talking about in terms of the overwhelm can't even get to it because we have these other rungs that are falling apart, broken, missing. How are we going to fix it, right? So I think I just want to point that out really clearly then that funders have an opportunity here to do things differently that could impact all those rungs institu institutionally and below. And it's like Katie said, it's not that radical. It's not that difficult. It's really about trusting community to be the experts of their own experience 
and trusting that people have the capacity to talk about things, whether or not they're uncomfortable, doesn't matter, right? I remind people when they say things like, I'm uncomfortable talking about racism. I say, how lucky are you that you only have to talk about it, right? The uncomfortable part is experiencing it. So let's choose to put our big britches on and get uncomfortable. And so I think you both said so many really beautiful things and painted a picture for our audience to really show how do we scale this ladder so that we can make deep impact at multiple levels at the same time. Um, so with that said, I want us to end on a couple of fun notes. Number one, maybe not so much fun, but important. What advice do you have for people who are entering this work? And then number two, much more fun. What do you hope the legacy of your work will be? Well, the advice I would have for people, I mean, is that it is overwhelming. So I think one piece of advice is to just do something and not to get frozen, not to allow yourself to be frozen by um, the just scale of the problems that we're trying to address. But, you know, just don't let yourself get frozen. Like, there's so much work to be done. And um, it's, you know, don't be discouraged because you're not going to see maybe the impacts of your work or the results or change in your lifetime. Um, we inherited these problems. Uh, they're generations old. And, you know, don't expect it to all change overnight. Like, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really a, such a, um, I think people that engage in this work, it's such a, it's such an honor and a privilege, and it's truly a gift for us to get to do this work. It's life-giving. And I think that uh, every day that we get to do it is, um, is such a gift. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think you should, you should enjoy the work, right? Like, I think you have to come at it from a place um, in your heart. and. Um, if you bring your heart to it, that you'll, it will sustain you for a long time so that you can hopefully continue to do the work and bring expertise and experience along with you. Um, so those are sort of some big picture things just about how do you sort of keep doing this work. Um, in terms of the legacy of the work, I mean, uh, again, I, I just think these problems are so uh, are so longstanding that I'm not sure, you know, that um, any any singular work or whatever is is really going to have a legacy. I mean, I think of legacy as like work that continues past you or your time, and that, you know, that I have seen, um, and it's such a joy to see when, you know, the work that you've done in collaboration with others like continues even even maybe when you pass it on to someone else. I think that comes with um, being able to, to, to mentor or, or guide people entering this work so that they um, want to continue it and that you're really kind of like adding, adding new, new blood, new people to the, to the work. That would be a personal legacy I would like to leave is, you know, helping to motivate others to be working on these issues 
Um, because again, we aren't starting anything new um, and we're standing on the shoulders of others. So I think it, to the extent that we can like pass this on so that people are, are continuing to come to it and, and we're, you know, we're, we're sort of growing the movement, even if it's just a few extra people, I mean, or someone to replace you when you're gone. I think that would be an accomplishment. I give right now folks who are entering this work kind of two main areas of advice. One is I think the kind of nonprofit advocacy legal services world is really grappling with its complicity often in racism and in the lack of of community empowerment. And I think folks who are entering can really play a role in moving that world along in kind of abandoning some of its roots that are not in a structure that really adopts an anti-racist, uh, anti-white supremacy approach, but really embraces community uh, and embraces the leadership of folks who are most impacted. And I think folks who are joining this work can play a really important role in highlighting when uh, nonprofit advocates and legal services are not meeting those goals. The little more kind of career advice is I think really folks, I, I don't think are quite aware of the range of ways that people can engage in the system change, framing from the person who wants to uh, chain themselves to the gates, from the person who helps people one-on-one -on -one, to the person who just wants to spend their days locked in a library reading and writing, to the person who loves chatting up policymakers, all of that is really based on where you feel like your skills and personality are best suited. And I really encourage people in their first few years of their careers in this area to think about, you know, am I a person who feels comfortable going for that systemic change that I may not see the results for, but I know that I've contributed to an impact litigation or contributed to um, getting more co-sponsors for a law that might improve the world in the future? Or do you need to see the people one-on-one on, uh, one -on -one firsthand who are getting helped by your work, even if that's a little less systemic? And that really, I think, goes into the legacy of my work where I am one of the people who works on the more systemic approaches where when I'm writing regulatory comments or meeting with officials or getting co-sponsors for a bill or working to draft a bill through a coalition, I often am unaware of what the impact of those results are going to be on the broader world, on society. And it, my legacy is really a, a one of hope that some of the, maybe through my actions, there are people who are going to get health care, who are going to have access to doctors, who are going to get treatment that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get at the quality that they got. And those people will go on to further strengthen the world, further make the world a place that is aligned with the values that I really try and hold. That was impactful and powerful and such an important message for so many reasons and for so many audiences. So I want to thank you both so much for, for talking with me today, for being candid and transparent and open about your experiences. You offered a moment, too, of critical hope, right? So knowing what's going on and having a full understanding of the whole picture, but also remaining hopeful, saying that things can change and things are getting better, things are improving, and here's some examples of how that's working. So thank you for your, your candid and honest responses. I appreciate you both so much in the work that you do, and I look forward to hearing more about it in the future, the critical future.
Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features Podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.